We love supporting and promoting the creators of musical theater throughout the world. And we would love to have your support as well. Go to musicaltheaterradio.com and click on the Become a Patron button because a supportive community is a strong community. Welcome back to another episode of Be Our Guest here on Musical Theater Radio. I'm your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. Imagine walking into the Village Gate Theater in New York in 1974. You open up the program and read the song list. Everybody loves to screw. Come in my mouth. Cunnilingus champion of Company C. Trust me, this ain't my fair lady. Today, we're going to be speaking with the creator and a couple of actors and performers of Let My People Come, a sexual musical. Earl Wilson Jr., Paul Tenalia, and Catherine Keats. Welcome to the show. Thank Thank you. you. Good to be here. Well, thank you all. I'm looking forward to talking to the three of you about this musical, uh, especially with all the song names and the the history of and everything that goes on. But before we get to that, I always like to get to know our guests a little bit better. And uh, Catherine, we're going to start with you and we'll go around. Um, But could we get a 30 second bio of Catherine? So who is Catherine in 30 seconds? Um, I am a performer, a performance artist, and a playwright, and um, I'm a friend of these two people that we are talking to, a long, long, long time friend, and I've been in the industry my whole life, and I also am a method acting coach, and a particularly uh, fond person of the arts, and I'm a mom. And uh, a a pretty happy uh, partner of 32 years to a wonderful actor. Great. Fantastic. Earl, tell us about yourself in 30 seconds. uh, Earl Wilson, who was the uh, saloon editor for the New York Post for 40 years and was considered in his later years as the dean of gossip columnists. So I was brought up in show business. I'm a composer lyricist. Uh, I've written more than a dozen musicals and uh, Let My People Come was written in 1974 on a dare, which if you'd like to get into, I'll tell you about. Uh, And I'm uh, breathlessly awaiting word on a new musical, which I've written as to whether it's gonna get produced or not. So I'm literally hanging my every moment by the phone in case it rings and I get a word from my manager that they're going to go and actually try to raise the millions of dollars it's going to take to do. If we are lucky, maybe it'll happen now (laughs) while we're doing the interview. It's very appropriate right now. It's what it's all about, actually. So we'll see if we can raise the bread to do it. Awesome. And we will get into all that stuff in just a minute. But we need to know who is Paul in 30 seconds. Oh, Paul is an actor, director, and currently stage manager for Coachella Valley Rep Theater in uh, Palm Desert, uh, Palm Springs, actually Cathedral City, California. Uh, And I did, let me say, oh my God, Let My People Come was 19, uh, 81, was that 40 years now? I can't do that. It's 40 years, right? Oh, my gosh. Um, Yeah, and I'm also, for 30 years, uh, a minister for the unity movement. And actually, Let My People Come was uh, how I began my spiritual path. We, uh, yeah, that's quite a story in itself. And I've actually shared that on a Sunday morning with with a number of people, hundreds of people, actually, how Let My People Come led me to my my spiritual awakening. Would you come to Jesus moment? Well, more Buddha, <laughs> a little Jesus, but it's a little Buddha, a little, little of everybody, a little everything. Very universal in my in my spiritual understanding. But yeah, I'll let my people come really help to uh, kick that off. Yeah, we got some great stories that we're going to be able to no, delve into. <laughs> Just this is fantastic. Now, before we get to to again the show, I, I want to take it just before that, Catherine. Again, we'll start with you. Were you always in a musical theater? Or was that something that you developed later? No, I I, uh, started when I was five. So um, it's been my entire life. Absolutely. And um, there was no looking back. It was Judy Garland and every fucked up musical theater singer on the planet from the time I could walk. 
<laughs> and it was New York City or die from Indiana. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Earl, how about yourself? Were you always into the arts and musical theater? Yes, as far back as I can remember. And my situation was that I was brought up on the cusp of show business because my father was writing about it every day. And so I would be taken on a school night to the Copacabana to see the opening of, of Frank Sinatra or Sammy Davis. And I got hooked on all that. And I, I feel like my interest in music was created from watching the great performers of the day doing their thing at the Copa. Very nice. And Paul, yourself. I was five years old when I was tap dancing to the tap dancer on uh, uh, the Ed Sullivan show. And I kicked, I did a kick. My shoe flew off, broke the window, and I got a spanking. So uh, <laughs> everybody's a critic, even dad. You know? So, yeah, and that was. And then I ended up as a music theater major at the Boston Conservatory of Music, so, and then moved to New York from there. Perfect. So let's delve into the show, uh, Let My People Come. Earl, you said on a dare. I really need to know, what what made you want to write this show? What was the inspiration then? All right, well, I was working with Phil Osterman, who was a director and producer, I had written my first show, A Day in the Life of Just About Everyone, and it opened and closed in New York in a week. I also wrote it for myself to be in, which may have been a mistake. Anyway, when the, once the show closed, I got a club date in Houston at the Hilton Hotel. And I went and I was introduced to Phil Osterman, who was a young director producer who was opening a new theater in Houston called the Theater of Love. And he was looking for an, a, an original musical. I told him I had one. He said, play it for me. I did. And in two seconds, he said, I know why it didn't work. Would you redo it this summer if you come out here and, and we'll, we'll have fun. We'll redo your show. And I said, sure. I came out. I moved to Houston for that summer. We rebuilt the show. It became a hit in Houston. And I went back to New York. And a few months later, one day I get a phone call and it's Phil. And I say, oh, where are you in Houston? He says, no, I've come to New York. And I said, what are you doing in New York? He says, I'm doing a show. And I said, what show? And he said, the one you're going to write. And I said, I beg your pardon. And he said, I want you to sit down right now and write the most outrageous song about sex that you can think of. I'll call you back in half an hour. Click. I wrote, come in my mouth. And I based this song on an experience I had had with a woman I had met in Houston. And I thought she had, she was a psychologist and she really opened me up sexually. She was a few years older, very wise. And the transition that I made from being a kind of square, average kind of guy to being open and in, the, in my own generation uh, changed everything. It allowed me to, to really start to delve into this whole idea of doing a show with songs using the four little words nobody ever uses in songs. And it was a big deal. You know, when, when Osterman called me, he said, put your first song down on a tape, bring it to my office, let me hear it. I played it for him and he went crazy. He said, I knew you could do this. And I said, what are you talking about? It's one, it, it's a silly, stupid song. You know, I mean, w- w- would you ever have the nerve to actually do it? He said, of course we'll do it. It'll be at the 11 o'clock number of the second act. <laughs> I said, you're kidding. He says, no, I've got a place already. And I'll go write an opening number. And I, 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 so I thought he was kidding. And I said, what should it be? He said, make it a vaudeville number. And you know how to write an opening number. I know you do. You're going to tell us what the show is about. And so the opening number was called Screw. And it told everybody what the show was about. And from then on, as a joke, we kept at it. He said, go write a gay number, go write a this number or that number. And I kept doing it. After a few months, we had half a show. And he said, but we had no money. So we had no idea how we were actually going to get it on. And he said, "Uh, we need to get some actors. He said, how are we going to do that? So we're going to hold an audition down at the Village Gate. I've spoken to Art DeLugoff. He's allowed us to use the theater to audition actors. Well, we put one ad in the paper, we got a thousand actors. And all non-union actors, all right off the bus from wherever they were from. And they all wanted to get into show business in New York. 
So we took 14 actors and we still had no money and we had them agree to work on a show that may never happen, which of course is how you do it in New York. And so we started rehearsing and what we would do is we had encounter sessions and they were very popular in the, in the early 70s, as you may remember, if you're old enough to look back that far. And um, everybody talked about their sexuality and I made notes. And then I would write songs based on what they were thinking about their sexuality, what they were comfortable with. And so in about two or three months, we had a show. We still had no money. So he said, we need to start having backers auditions. Now he, he had been to my parents' apartment. My parents had a lovely nine room apartment. And they had a huge living room. And he said, I'd like to give the backers audition in your living room. Will your mother allow us to do it? And I said, well, I got to tell her what the show is about. <laughs> but I guess she will. So I went to her and I told her. And I said, it's a little rough. You know, it's very frank. And she said, I'm a big girl. Can I hear it? And I said, sure. So we had one evening of backers. And these were people we did not actually know. They were invited by other people who knew professional theater investors. And it was hysterical. These people came into the living room in their minks and their tuxedos thinking they were going to see Hello, Dolly. And all we did was sing the songs. And they sat there dumbfounded. They didn't laugh. They didn't applaud. <laughs> they didn't know what to do. They sat there <laughs> dumbass. When it was over, they all got up, snuck out of the house. Nobody asked for any money. Nobody did any. And my mother is sitting in the back of the room working on her fourth vodka. She waves her finger at me, come here. So I come over to her and she says, I think you have a hit show. And I said, you're kidding. And she said, no, it's wonderful. It's funny. It's serious. She said, those people are crazy. How much money do you need? This is 1974. We needed $10,000 to get the show on. She said, well, I don't have 10, but I'll give you three. If you, you and your friend over there can get the $7,000, you got a shot. So I went to Phil and I said, can you raise $7,000? And he had, he owned a flower shop in Houston, Texas called wow. the Flower Children. He went to the bank and he borrowed $7,000 to buy a refrigerator <laughs> for his flower shop. He did not buy the refrigerator. <laughs> so we got to the first, we actually, we, we got closer and closer. We were finally just going to go, go do it. The actors weren't paid. We had $10,000 and we had a lot of goodwill from a lot of people who wanted to see it. And we had a wonderful uh, publicist named Saul Richmond. He was one of the old, old school of how you actually get this done. And he told us in a meeting, he said, you know, you cannot open this show for critics because they'll kill it. Right. And we said, well, what do we do? And he says, we don't open. And has anybody ever done that? And he said, no, to my knowledge, no one has never not opened the show critics but he says they're not going to come all the way down to the village gate to begin with because they're all uptown people they're not going to do that they're going to be snooty so we make a point of not inviting them but he says what we do is we invite all the feature story writers all the people who do interviews we get them to come and see a run-through of it we got he got the uh, women's wear daily he made a deal with them that they could come and shoot pictures of the nude actors for their publication. They never had any nudity in their paper. But women's wear was the gospel of the garment industry. And if you got the people in the garment industry to come to your show, you had a hit. And he knew that. And he said, I know they're going to love this. So they brought a photographer and an interviewer. And they came. And the deal was, you cannot review the show. We are not open for reviews. But you can write about it as a feature story and do anything. But you cannot review it. So they came to watch the show and the interview, the reviewer came to Phil and I at the end and he said, I absolutely despise and loathe this show. And Phil said to him, well, that's your prerogative, sir, but you know, you cannot write a review. And he says, I know, I don't know what I'm going to do. And Phil said, I have a suggestion. Go stand at the exit, pick 10 people from the audience at random ask them what they think, and we will accept anything they say because they paid for their tickets. He didn't mention to the guy 
that to get out of the theater, you had to pass through the actors who were standing naked to shake your hand. So the guy stood on the outside, 10 people came out, he picked 10, they all said, I can't wait to come back and bring all my friends. I haven't had this much fun in a long time in the theater. And that's how it started. And then before you know, we had a, we had three pages in Playboy magazine, New York Times covered it. Nobody ever wrote a review. And the whole secret was don't write a review. We don't, we're not looking to find out what you didn't like. Tell us what you saw, you know? Yeah. And they always got down to the audience always loved it. You couldn't deny it. They were hooting and hollering and, and coming back to see it more than once. Anyway, that's, that's the dare. Wow. And, and honestly, the audience is the only one that matters in the end, right? Exactly right. So. If you get it, you can guess on that and guess right, you got it. <laughs> exactly. Well, let, Catherine, let, let's turn to you. Um, when did you come on board? What was your first uh, experience with the show? Um, I was, I think I was 18 and I got cast in New York City for a company in Philadelphia. Um, and I needed my equity card and that's how I could get my card. And, um, it was a trip, you know, I remember being like, I had, I think they were doing the revival of hair or, but the revival never went up, but I was Saw, I was, I was, I can't remember really, but I got the show, went to Philly, and we were working um, there. And the cast, I mean, it was just fun, right? The cast was a trip. We were all so young, and it was a really innocent show, but um, I remember being really afraid to tell my parents. <laughs> and didn't I didn't tell them ever I did a thousand shows of let my people come and toured all over Canada all over Canada which was a, I mean it was really an incredible experience and when you do that and I was the dance captain which was a blast uh, the real show of course after that many shows was backstage <laughs> um, and I remember almost getting fired a few times for pranks that we would do, <laughs> um, but we didn't get fired. And, you know, I mean, it was, you know, it was the late seventies and early eighties. So there was also a lot happening and a lot of protests happening I remember protesting the Trident missiles from coming through Canadian waters. We were really active doing that. Uh, we were, and I was working uh, with the music director who was also my lover and uh, writing other shows, working on other shows. I mean, it, it, it gave us a lot of opportunity, a lot of freedom for other creative experiences because it was a good solid job for all of us. It was, it was consistent work. I mean, everybody came to see the show. Everybody. I mean, we had the prime minister in Canada there all the time. How many times do you think it was there, Paul? Oh, I couldn't count. I do remember Margaret Trudeau being there. Yeah. Being that surprises everybody. me not at all. But Pierre <laughs> and Trudeau and Margaret were there. That is totally yeah. their type of show. <laughs> well, we had a joke yeah. about Margaret Trudeau in the show. You know, it's a very kind of, it's kind of an improvisational nature to the show, you just kind of, you know, you, you know, it's very second city-ish where you kind of put in local references. And we were mm -hmm. in Ottawa, oh, Hull, I guess, really. And uh, Margaret was there with a big table in the front. And uh, I think they had about 15 people at that big table. And uh, and there's a there's a scene in the show business, nobody knows where the girl's reading a porno script. She, she's freaking out. She said, who wrote this? And I say Margaret Trudeau and the whole place just cracked up. <laughs> I looked out and Margaret Trudeau was not happy. Margaret Trudeau was sitting there glaring at me. And oh God. And after the show, I went up to her and I said, hello. And she was very sweet and very nice. And I said, you didn't seem to like that, that, that reference. She said, I didn't think it was very funny. 
<laughs> but her whole table was, cracked up, and I'm sure they, you know, they they probably heard about that afterwards too. But she was she was lovely. She was really really. But the question is, were you naked when you asked her? I know I was a, I was naked in front of the prime minister's wife, so that's always just kind of a. That is so funny. We were always naked after the show, right? <laughs> Meeting people. No, the prime minister bothered even worse, I guess you know. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> we were oblivious though. We were just like so comfortable. Oh, well. being nude oh yeah Just, well after a while yeah Almost so paul yeah. when did you come on board with, with the show i was in new york i was um auditioning as we all did back then and um i went to the director's studio on 42nd street and he didn't have an yeah. accompanist i was like oh. so i sang acapella and i went, what kind of a what kind of a low rent operation is this he doesn't have an, <laughs> yeah. doesn't have an accompanist and so he gave me the uh, he gave me a song called "The Ad" to read as a monologue, and as I was reading it, he was cracking up. He was laughing so hard. I was, like, oh. was that Otto? Otto, Otto? yeah, yeah. And um, Otto. and he said, "You know, if you do this show, you'll be the funniest guy who ever did this part." And I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> I didn't know what he was talking about, and I, 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 I didn't have any concept. I mean, I, I auditioned for the show in Boston. I think I was in college, and uh, you know, I. I didn't hear anything after that, but there it was again. I went, okay, this sounds like an interesting. So that weekend, I got three offers. I got an offer to do the show, which is opening in Philly, going to Canada. I got an offer to become part of a tap dance company. And I got an offer to work for Herb Green, the music director of 42nd Street. Yeah. And I thought, which one would be more fun? I went, let my people come. Sounds like it would be a, oh. a, fun, a fun thing to do. And I was, you know, I... And there I was, and here I am. So, yeah, yeah, it's such a it's such a major show for the generation like my kids' age, yeah. um, because it was it was so incredibly progressive. I mean, it's it's mind boggling how progressive it was. Right. Yeah. Just so, I mean, just think of how the issues that it was covering. We're un we were doing that, and Earl wrote that. And now you couldn't even get away with that now. And we were, I mean, we would fight over who was going to sing Come in My Mouth. Not, not because we wanted to, because we didn't want to, because the audience would, there were people that would freak out, right? And we'd be just like, you know, I'm not going to sing it. No, I'm not going to sing it. Depending, it would always, or sometimes we'd want it, it just depend on the audience temperament, right? If how drunk the audience was or wasn't on a Saturday. I mean, there were so many elements to deal with, with that show, yeah. but mostly that song was so low. I'm not going to use that word, but you know what I mean? That <laughs> well, there was, a, there was a critic who said what a what an awful thing that the woman came out and had oral sex with one of the men it's like how do you have oral sex and sing a song at the same time and i was like <laughs> and there was, oh, there was so many with her yeah so, i mean what the yeah. thing that we got reviewed throughout our, our time of course and i think half of them enjoyed it even if they didn't really yeah. you know they might have had quibbles about it and and half were you could really tell that they were having they had psychological problems or they had sexual problems anyway because they would say things like this or i remember i remember one time in chicago somebody called it let my people spew let my people drip and burn let my i mean it's like oh, yeah it touch. you really feel about your own sexual life you know? or they would be afraid what to write a review about how they really felt because of their family oh oh sure yeah yeah because they wouldn't want to admit how much they loved it one woman yeah. was, uh, for the gay uh, for the gay paper in Chicago interviewed me, and she said she loved the show except for the choir director. She said, "I hate pratfall. I I hate slapstick." <laughs> and I went, "Oh, I'm sorry." <laughs> oh, that was the best. I'm that sorry. was the best. <laughs> oh, it was the best. It was so much oh, fun. That was the funniest scene. I remember one time in, in New York, we did the revival in New York for a short time at the uh, Carter Theater. And we the, the house was sold out to uh, to AT and T to the um, to the operators at AT and T. I think it was something like a 
an anniversary party or a holiday party or something. And uh, it was, I would say, 90% black women. Uh-huh. <laughs> they were not having it. They were not having the show at all. They were sitting there going, hmm. <laughs> until the second act when i came out as choir director the one that the, the the writer in chicago hated and all of a sudden these women were on the floor i mean literally there was a woman rolling down the aisle <laughs> so i i went down the stage and i took a program and i was fam- flying uh, you know fanning her oh that's great it, and the I- whole place just blew can up I- you, you never I- know what anybody's gonna like you know it was, it was it was a can shock I, to all I, of us. Can I insert an author's note here? Sorry, can, what, I, Earl? can I insert an author's note here? Oh, for sure. Please do. Because people listening to this will not know what we're referring to. The number we're talking about was called choir director or choir practice. And it was a madrigal. And a madrigal is a series of interesting, independent remarks told all at once. Mm-hmm. But it's like a conversation that you pick up one person saying something here and then you pick up the next thing you hear is the next sentence the other person is saying. So it's not a continuous conversation. It's bits and pieces. It's very difficult to write a madrigal. Mm-hmm. This is hysterical when you read the lyrics. So, and that I always hoped would stand out, but to, you really have to listen to it to get what they're saying. Anyway, just wanted to insert that so we know what we're talking about, that that's why it was a funny number. The choir director who, who conducted it was hysterical also. But if you listen to the actual lyrics, it was, you know, drop dead funny. So Earl, I'd, I'd love to hear from you in this, that, you know, uh, Paul and, and Catherine were talking about how audiences were so, you know, divided, depending, and, and even if it was the second act, they really liked over the first act. So you must have seen a, a lot of um, different reactions. How did, how did they affect you? Did you just let it roll off your back like, like water on a duck's back? Or, or how did that affect you? I, must must say, polarizing. I, I don't think I ever saw anybody say in front of me that they didn't like it. And if you, were, if you were standing in the back of the house, which is what I always did when I saw the show, all you saw was people laughing and cheering. Yeah. And so I, I thought, oh, of course, I'm sure there are people who don't understand it or don't like it or whatever. But by and large, most people, when they're honest, they're laughing at this and they're cheering at it and they get it and they think it applies to them. Mm-hmm. So I thought it worked. Nice. <laughs> Did you think, now it ran for two years, I believe, off-Broadway? Off it ran for, I, I forget how many years off-Broadway, two or four, but it ran for 10 years in Canada. Wow. It's played, it was recently redone in 2013 here in Manhattan, and we're trying to bring it back, and I feel we're going to succeed. We have a lot of interest in, in redoing it, because there's nothing like it anywhere. That's, that's fantastic. So now, Catherine, Paul, you two were, you said you went out on tour and toured across Canada and things like that. Did you notice a difference in the audiences and how they reacted to it, say from New York or, you know, places in Canada? For example, I think, Catherine, you mentioned when we were talking before uh, that you played in Calgary. And that's like south, south, um, southern the United States for us in Canada. Very conservative. How did that play like there? We were picketed oh. every evening. That was great. You know, they, <laughs> thank you for the free publicity, Christians, for, you know, they were, you know, we were in the paper. We were, you know, it was, it was, it was a happening. It was an event. Uh, so, yeah, we sold very well. During the stampede. We were, during, we were playing during the oh, stampede. stampede of all things. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> we loved it. Yeah. Look, we I, were so into being picketed. Were you, were either of you in the original Toronto opening night? Yeah, yeah, I was. We both were. Yeah, we both were the shows. So opening night, I'll never forget okay. it. It was, it was. Everybody was there because they were afraid we were going to be shut down by the morality squad, which I, I thought was a joke name. I went, what's that? There was all the vice squad. I went, oh, okay. So they were in the back of the theater, and at the very end of the show, we're all in a huddle for the finale, and we're looking at the man. Going, let my people come, get out of the way, you old man, you stupid man. And so they were right there in our line of, of vision. And I'm telling you, it was art meets life. And we were like breaking down the wall of the morality squad. It was, it was, it was <laughs> surreal. 
And everybody was cheering. Everybody was like just out of their minds because they knew they were in the back there. So it was it was a happening. It was a real yeah. cultural event. Afterwards, we had to go get dressed. We went upstairs and the police, the morality squad, were, um, there were two of them. They brought us to the office and we were sitting there and um, they said, you've got to put your clothes on. If not, we're going to, you're going to be deported. We're going to fingerprint you. You'll be criminals forever in Canada. And he was blah, 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 blah. So he was sitting, this, this, he was, he looked like Jimmy Cagney sitting behind the desk, compounding the desk. And there was a real tall guy behind him, one of his one of his henchmen or deputies. And so they were blathering on and on. He said, any question? And Ellen, um, Catherine said, yeah, but how did you like the show? <laughs> and the guy, oh, so bad. the guy glared at her and the big guy behind her went, thumb, thumb. <laughs> and then he put his hands back in. The guy turned around, I, I swore it was a comedy act. I went, Is this, this can't be on purpose. Didn't you guys get arrested? No, we didn't get arrested, no. Um, the lawyer immediately um, took the what the what the cop said and said, well, you, and brought it to court. And the courts, um, he said, uh, back up a little bit. So the, the lawyer said, if you have to have an article of clothing on, we're going to put you in ballet shoes. Right. So flesh colored ballet shoes. And then they brought it to court and the court ruled you can wear flesh colored ballet shoes. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the dress. next night, the next night we were picketed by the strippers. <laughs> the strippers <laughs> felt really safe because they had to wear a G-string. Now the owners were saying, go out there only in your stilettos. And they didn't like that. They were like, no, we like the G-string. So they picketed us for, for getting in the way of, of feeling safe for them. So, you know, it was... What a great story. Oh, we were so rebellious. This. You couldn't write oh. this. Oh, we were rebellious. And we were so, sold out for five months. We were gonna, only going to oh, be we in were, Toronto yeah. for a while. And then they we were all bring out a whole Canadian company. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, quick, quick question, Earl. Did you ever think when you wrote this show in the first place, you'd be angering Canadian strippers? <laughs> <laughs> I only hoped. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you play in Toronto? What theater was it? It's called the Basin Street. Basin Street. Oh, yeah. It was a jazz club, uh, which was oh, closed yeah. now, I believe. Yeah, that's what I'm going, I don't recognize. Yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was astonishing. We were in the cabaret on the top, and there was a jazz club on the bottom. And after oh. we were done, we would go down and watch, oh, my God. I remember Jackie yeah. and Roy. I remember seeing so many incredible artists. You know, I was, <laughs> we were so high sometimes. It was like, I can't remember. Who was, no, we weren't. It was an astonishing time. Then we moved to. Uh, we didn't take any drugs ever. Never, no. There's no drugs at all, no, because there weren't a lot in Canada at the time. And then we moved to Yorkville after that. And, oh, yeah. Wow. It was an Italian restaurant. I can't remember the name of it. It was an Italian restaurant uh, in Yorkville. Like, that's all I remember. Wow. That's, Paul no. remembers everything. Uh, <laughs> No, yeah, you, he's good. You got some incredible stories, and 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 just from starting, just from the impetus and, and the beginnings of it as as a joke, and and to write a song, up to you know angry strippers in Canada. That's it's <laughs> it's crazy the trajectory. And, oh, and not to mention the show was nominated for a Grammy. Yes, I was going to mention. Yeah. How how did that work for you? Like, did you did you get to go to the Grammys or and, and yes. how did you? What was that like? It was great. It was hysterical because the, the big question was whether they would ever actually announce the title of the show on television. And it was a big question nobody knew. And they did. And there was a laugh. <laughs> anyway, I was, you know, when, when I heard we were nominated for a Grammy, I said to whoever told me, I said, didn't anybody listen to the lyrics? That's crazy. And this was what, your 74? Four that it was nominated or? Yeah, 74. 74. So what were you up against in the category? Um, it was a black, a black musical. Uh, Bubbling Brown Sugar? No, no, no. It's not one of those. It was a serious dramatic play. Raisin? Yes. Oh, right. right, right. Okay. I don't know any songs from Raisin. I, 
it, it's, a, it's a pretty good show. Yeah, but beautiful. completely opposite. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there was always a confusion about the title. People would, they didn't know what they were, you know, a lot of times they thought they were coming to a musical about Moses. They didn't really. <laughs> they really no. didn't get it, especially in Miami. You know, the, the, some of the older Jewish people would come in and they would they would they would sit and they would talk to us in the beginning. In the beginning, we went out into the audience to to chat with people. It warmed them up and it loosened them up a little bit because they were a little nervous about a new musical. What are they going to do? So we called it foreplay, and we went out and we just you know chatted with people before the show. And there were you know I mean there was Miami Beach, so there were a lot of older Jewish people there, and um, some of them thought because Jackie Mason was playing in the uh, nightclub upstairs, a lot of people thought they were coming to see Jackie Mason and let my people come. And it didn't work very well. So they, and, uh, not on the newbie show. But it's not, it's, you know. um, so they would, they would just, they would sit there, and as soon as we sang "Screw," the women put their purses on their lap, and they were ready to go. And uh, so they went to the box office, and they demanded a refund. And there was a sign that said, "No refunds after the show has begun." Yeah. And so they would, uh, they would come back, and they would sit for the second act, but they would not be happy about it. Um, the, 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 the older men loved it. They thought it was wonderful. The older women were going, no, 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 no. Oh, so, they'd hate it when their men loved it. They'd oh, I think they did. <laughs> so we were walking out one evening, uh, uh, one of the other actors and I, uh, and uh, this, this individual actor was rather well endowed. And as we were walking out, this four foot 11 uh, man looked about 90. Uh, we were we were walking out, and he looked at us, and he looked at this actor, and he said, "You're not so big." <laughs> <laughs> and then he walked away. <laughs> okay, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this very actor was in the uh, Off Broadway uh, revival with me, and one evening he came to work, and he came backstage, and he was so shaken. And I said, "What's the matter?" He said. Um, his dad was a minister in Massachusetts, and they surprised him by coming, renting a bus. And there were 30 of them that came from the church oh. to see him in this wonderful biblical musical. <laughs> oh, no. And there was nothing he could do about it but do the show. And uh, after the end of the show, he went out to greet them as they were getting on the bus. And his mother said, we will talk about this later. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what the conversation was, but uh, yeah. it was, it was a Neil Diamond comedy, essentially. You know, it's like, oh, my mother's here because they came to see let my people go. Oh, Did oh. you ever hit a city or, or, or a place that just surprised you whether you know you thought they would be positive for it or you you know you thought they're were, they were going to be negative um for it like like calgary for example did you ever kill them into a city or a place and go wow this is how they're going to react to it i think calgary was really fun you know it was it was very yeah it was very texan in that way and they were really into it they were really having a great time we got to edmonton and forget it oh edmonton was a dull dull place it was they dull. once in a while they 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 laughed but uh, there was something weird about Edmonton I just I'm sorry Edmonton I didn't like <laughs> Edmonton it was just we were at a university and I it was ugh, it was yeah. I didn't really care for I couldn't wait to get out of there Vancouver the was lovely. Vancouver was, was a lot too of young Vancouver was great Chicago yeah. was fun um Miami surprised me because a lot of times they just sat there and well, I don't think they heard us I think they were I think their hearing aids were we're not working quite well enough. <laughs> yeah, there we are. Vancouver so, was fun. So the show ran, like I said, ran for two years off Broadway. It had a, a short uh, run on Broadway, and and then it ran for eight years, just in tour, I believe, or something to that effect. Ran for ten years in Philadelphia and in uh, Canada, in, in in Toronto. Played four years in London played in Paris, played all over the world. Uh, and this is why we think we can bring it back. Did, did you did you find the Europeans reacted different than say North Americans? I went to London to see the show when it opened and uh, it was very funny, you know, the, the English, the English and the Americans are separated by a common language. They don't really speak our language and they didn't really get our jokes or if mm -hmm. they got them, they got them three beats after the punchline. 
And on top of that, most of the audience in London was from Asia. There were a lot of Japanese because the Japanese have nothing to compare with what the show is like at that time. So the show ran successfully for four years. And uh, I would I would stand in the back of the theater and listen to the laughs. You know, and I kept waiting and the joke would go and then there'd be silence and then there would be a giggle or a titter and then there'd be a laugh. And I thought, I wonder what they're laughing at. They missed the joke. It was fun to watch. Wow. Hmm. That's interesting. So one more, one, more, one more little story, if I can. Yeah. Uh, the whole idea of nudity was not initial when we were talking about the show. That was not even considered, at least not by me. I guess it is that Phil Osterman probably had it in the back of his mind all along, but didn't think it was wise to divulge it to me that I probably would have got scared off. But halfway through the rehearsals, he said, he came to me one day and he said, you realize to make this work, we're going to have to have nudity in the show. And I said, do you think these this cast members are going to do that? And he said, you're going to have to find out. And I said, me? And he said, well, they won't do it for me, but they might do it for you. I leave it to you to figure it out. So we had an audition, a rehearsal rather, at my parents' apartment again. And my parents were out of town. And I greeted everybody in the nude. I opened the door. And then as they entered, I said, this is the day, folks. We either do this or we forget the whole thing because it doesn't work unless we have some nudity in the show. So they started to walk into the, to the room and some immediately took their clothes off. And some said, I will never take my clothes off. My parents, my religion, I don't, I'm not proud of my body, blah, 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 blah. So we went in and we had a, an eight or a 10 hour rehearsal until the early morning hours. And I sat at the piano nude playing and I watched them go through the journey of, I can't, I can't, I guess maybe I have to, how am I gonna do this? Oh my God, I gotta do this. Yeah. It was an amazing experience. So I, I asked both of our friends, did they have any trouble the first time they had to take their clothes off? Hmm. We didn't. Oh, are you asking us? Yeah. Yeah, I, it's hard to remember. I mean, did you, I, maybe, I mean, I, I had a pretty wicked eating disorder, not before I got there. And uh, I had times in the show when that would rear its head. And I think, I think that taking my clothes off was you know, it really put me face to face with myself. And, but I, in some weird ways, I was also really comfortable with my body because I'd been dancing my whole life and using my instrument, you know, my body as an instrument. So that, yeah, I think it was challenging. I mean, I wouldn't tell my parents, I mean, so long ago, I wouldn't tell my parents. So there must have been, a feeling of being really judgmental about it to myself. Yeah. In retrospect, it grew me. That show grew me so much. Mm. It just, it was so life-changing and, and such a spiritual experience, you know? And the friends and the, com and the, I mean, the people in the show were all still so close, you know? What I went through in the show on every level changed my entire life, you know? So the nudity was symbolic of everything, just being completely naked. We were not naked until, well, at least when I joined the show, we weren't naked until we were in front of an audience. They didn't know. We Pretty much, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, they yeah. didn't know what we, you know, they didn't know they were going to get until the until they saw what was happening in the audience. And um, I remember my first night because I was put into the show gradually. Um, mm -hmm. It was I, I, one of the guys from Philadelphia was shows not to leave town, so they put me in in a matter of days, actually. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, I, I, was, I was put in a number by a number hired, at I night. I was I would do three numbers, then another for three numbers, and uh, so when it got to the nudity, I you know we we're at the end of the first act. I like. I took everything off until my shorts. I went, oh, good God, I'm about to be naked. And Nikki, 
one of the guys came over and said, need some yeah. help, and he pulled my pants down. Or, yeah, right, like, right. Yeah, it's like, wow. Um, doing, doing, doing what my people come taught me to be fearless on stage. Yeah. It taught me that yeah. there was nothing physically that I could not do on stage. And what it did, thank you, Earl, was to, I, I did the show on and off for about three years, and it taught me about comedy. It taught, the audience taught me about comedy. It taught me about timing. It taught me about, everything that I know about comedy, I really learned from what my people come. So Earl, thank you for writing. Yeah. I learned how to perform. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. I learned how definitely how to be a performer. Yeah. And how to it also taught me how to sing. One I mean, evening you, you know what? One evening in Toronto there was a typical sold out Friday, Saturday night. I think it was a Friday evening. And there was a table there. in Toronto. You could see everybody. It was it was a it was a beautiful cabaret that was right. They were right in front of you. It was like IMAX. It was like right yeah. there. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a table uh, stage left that had about six or seven people. There was a guy in a wheelchair. I don't know how they got him up. I think they carried him downstairs. Or and um, during choir practice, they were laughing at my my choir director and she was, they were all, you know, the audience loved, loved, loved the show. They loved, they loved that number. And afterwards, the wife of the guy who was in the wheelchair waited to talk to me. And she said, I just wanted to thank you because my husband got out of the hospital this morning. He's been in there for a year. He's been in and out of the hospital for five years with a back problem. He, he, he had a spine injury and he's been in pain for five years. And tonight was first night he laughed in five years and because of you and the show so we cried together it was it was very emotional it was, it was like wow yeah to think that this what somebody called a little nudie show was allowed healing on the on the level that it did i mean we yeah. do this all the time couples yeah coming to realize that they're one of them or both of them are gay um yeah uh there nyu sent uh, therapists to see the show and uh, they, they set their patients in and then they would go in therapy to talk about what they enjoyed, what they found funny, what they didn't find funny, what upset them. I, this show healed a lot of lives and uh, yep. it, what began as a, as a dare Earl turned into a, a real healing experience for so many people mm -hmm. for so many years. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. Wow. I'm pretty sure there's probably hundreds upon hundreds of stories and anecdotes mm -hmm. and, and things like that, that we could keep talking about yeah. and just keep going on and on. But I'd love to know, um, let's move to now. Uh, Earl, do you well, Wait, anything? wait, well, let me say one other thing. Sure. When we were running the show as well, the AIDS epidemic had begun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was significant because we were doing the show during that. And that also was, um, a major, just, just significant in what was happening while we were performing. Did you notice a transition in in audiences and how people reacted as you know this the you know the late seventies moved into the eighties and like you said about the AIDS epidemic and, and the audiences and how people reacted to it? I think in beginning like it's it's a blur, but I think right I as I recall eighty two. Middle of 82, end of 82, into 83, you, we felt a shift happening. There was, when, when I joined in 81, when we, when we did Philadelphia, we did uh, Toronto, uh, there, was, um, there was a joy. There was a real, there was fun. I mean, you know, you know um, we had fun. I'll just put it that way. We had fun uh, back then. And then all of a sudden, it was, it was deadly. All of a sudden, it began. There was a guy who joined the show, uh, Jimmy. Uh, he he died, I think, before they even came up with the name AIDS. Yeah, they we did. Knew he, he was did. sick. We it was like he was not well. We didn't know why. Yeah, yeah. And he was the first one that we knew who had, had yep. the disease. Yeah, Jimmy Donovan. Donovan, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, say his name. So Jimmy it shifted. Donovan. There was there became a shift, and all of a sudden, uh, we were in a different time. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah let my people come had its it, it yeah it had, had its moment and and then when the society shifted it's like hair in a lot of ways now yeah, i mean it's a exactly. yeah it's a period piece now and it's wonderful and still 
terrific and valid. And it's a it's a peek into 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 a, the early seventies and what what was life back then like back then? And let my people come really was what life was back in you know nineteen seventy three four five seven or, or so. It was a, and so important for the LGBTQ community. Yeah, so important and so important now that that historically yeah. life uh, moves forward and goes on and is and was and will always be uh, here. Yeah. And you know, LMPC is is a historical and current piece of work which is why I'm so glad you're doing this piece, you know, because it's, it's a really important piece of work and, and, and people need to know about it. And we were all, I mean, Earl to write it and it to be produced and done. And we were very brave to do the show. Yeah. And it took every night we did it, you know, it took a lot of courage, even though we were so young, we didn't really know it sometimes, but we weren't that young. We we were aware that we were doing. Yeah. Mono especially, we were aware that we were breaking the law. We were aware that we were we were. Uh, so when we were we, when we were singing things like laws are made by cold men who can't get it up no more. That's true. We were we were we were telling the truth. We were tell we this, yeah, was, right. this wasn't a song. This was something that we were actually putting ourselves on the line. And uh, it's even more true now. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the producer was there. Everybody involved with the show was there except for our director. And that was uh, that was disappointing to us that he decided to go back to New York and kind of scoot out. Um, yeah. You know, it was something that we all had to work through that we were all in. And the producer. Sorry, go ahead. I'm no, sorry. There was, we were just all in this together. And he, just, he said, well, you know, you'll need somebody uh, here in case you all get arrested. It's like, OK, thank you. <laughs> so that was disappointing. Right that uh, we felt that the man who was kind of helming the whole thing decided to um, abandon at that point. But, but And the producer at the time is now, he's like won a couple Tonys, yeah. that producer. Yeah. Wow. Well, let's talk about today. Earl, Earl, what have you got, what have you got coming down the pipe? Are you, outside of that you were talking about, you, you didn't get the phone call, obviously, while this was going on, but, uh, what have you got going on that you can tell us about? I'll tell the story from the beginning because it's an interesting tale. Songwriters get ideas in their head from God knows where. And in my case, it happens all the time. It's a phrase, either a tune or a bunch of words or something. And I don't question it anymore. I just listen to whoever's whispering in my ear. In 2011, I was taking a shower and I got an image in my mind that I could not get out of my mind. The image of Barack Obama standing on the stage of the 2004 Democratic National Convention about to give his speech when a ghostly figure stood behind him. And the ghostly figure was Dr. King. And in my image, I saw Dr. King whispering in his ear. And I started to wonder, of course that's happening. What is he saying to him? And so for the next one month, all I could think about was what was he saying to him? What would it sound like if it was a song? What would it sound like if it was a musical? At the end of the month, I had about 80% of a musical I was calling Yes, Y-E-S. Uh, I managed to get most of it written. I went to a friend of mine, Mercedes Ellington, who's the granddaughter of Duke Ellington. And she had an organization called the Duke Ellington Center for the Arts. I played her the show. She went nuts. She said, you know what you have? And I said, I think I do, but I don't really know yet. And she said, we're going to start to try to figure out how to get this to happen. So we worked on it for a year. We did a presentation of part of it through equity. And that exists now. That exists. From there, I didn't know where to go, and I didn't know what to do. We had one older producer who was interested extremely interested and then died a week later after she told us. I waited, I've been waiting for 12 years. I'm now at the point, about four years ago, I got myself an agent and the agent said to me, I'm gonna get this on, but you're gonna to have to be patient. 
So what has happened is that now for the last two or three months, I've been waiting to hear either a yes or a no from a major, major producer, mostly of films, major producer as to whether they want to do it as a live musical on television and then bring that to Broadway. And it would take a lot of money. And that's what we're all waiting to see if they're going to buckle down and say we can raise the money. So I think it'll happen. I'm assured it'll happen by my manager, but she says, I'm, I'm not writing a check, but they haven't said no. She says, and they all love the show. And let me just tell you a little bit about yeah. what it is. What it has become is a sort of history of, of Blacks in America. And from a, from a Black matter point of view. And of course, it comes to the point where Dr. King convinces Obama after questioning him, tricking him, trying to embarrass him, that he is ready for the task of becoming the first African-American president. And which is why it's called yes, as he finally says yes at the end. Anyway, I'm waiting on that. That's what I'm biting my nails over because if it happens, it'll be a big deal. It's a continuation of the psychology of let my people come. And then it's about people rising up to make a change in something that's important. So I think it could have a similar reaction. I bet there'll be people who will despise it, who hated Obama, but there'll be other people who love it. It's a wonderful show, I believe. Well, we're all rooting for you. And we're looking forward to seeing that sometime, somewhere. So Earl, we hope you get the phone call, especially in the next minute, because um, that would be awesome. <laughs> Catherine, what, what, what have you got going on? Um, I have um, a show that uh, I just uh, finished and it is just finishing previews and it's probably going to be in previews for a really long time in different cities uh, and because uh, I may not open it ever doing what Earl did with Come um, and it's called The Hummingbird. It's a solo beat musical and uh yeah, it's a high wire ride about what I was going through while uh, Let My People Come, while I was doing Let My People Come. Um, I was with the music director and the entire time we were playing the show, even though Let My People Come isn't referenced in The Hummingbird, he and I were writing shows and um, he became schizophrenic. And it's a love story. The show is a love story and this particular love story culminates in me trying to save him and he um, ends up uh, holding me captive for 54 days and um, wanting to, uh, he's told by the voices in his head that I'm at the center of a conspiracy to control him and I needed to be dismembered and hung from the trees. And um, ultimately um, a jury trial takes place, even though the jury trial isn't in the show. And um, he uh, is committed, he was committed to a mental institution for um, six months only. But the way I've composed the show is uh, from beginning to end, it's it's a soundscape with music and pretty much beat poetry wrapped around songs. It's, it's really, from what I'm hearing from the audiences, uh, it's good. I, I, and it's, it's pretty grueling to do and it's inspirational. And it's also filled with love, and uh, a lot of caring and empathy and sympathy for both. I played 10 characters um, and this is somebody I, I loved. I mean, I loved him. All of the people here knew him um, and he was brilliant. He played all of Cole Porter's unpublished works and he wrote the musical St. Francis about St. Francis of Assisi and but his illness and my illness too, um, trying to save him, um, was significant. So that's 
what I'm doing. And it took me a long time to finish the show. It originated in development at Berkeley Repertory Theater at the ground floor and finished development at the Marsh with director David Ford. He's a brilliant solo director. I'm glad it's you know done, even though I may extend it a little to get it to that 75 minute mark, but I'm not sure. But it really does deal with mental health issues and that we need a lot of love. And I wanna take the shame piece out of it for people, you know, and I went through a lot of PTSD as I'm sure he did. Um, yeah, and you know, there's a few, only a few people that knew me, you know, I was in hiding a long, long time after it uh, for many years. And my story broke in Reader's Digest and many papers. And so that's what I've been doing. And it's incredible to perform it. I've only done a few performances now. So thank you. Well, congratulations. On, on the show and I, I, I we've talked before and I, I it's such a difficult topic and and it, um you know emotional and, and thank you we had I'd it filmed on stage someplace yeah well I, you like, will Trump. I'm finding you know I'm looking for Perfect. the right you know theaters to do it in as special performances or a producer or agent you know how to piece that all together I'm not familiar with the world of solo performance art or where it's going to fit this is a new kind of thing for me but yeah. we'll figure it out so thanks for asking i appreciate it yeah for sure and paul what, what have you got in the pipeline what are you what are you doing right now oh gosh um you know, just before i get to that i yeah. uh, i would i can't wait to see the show um i'll find a way to do that. Um, I just want to mention Ken in, in relationship to the show was, I don't think Let My People Come on tour anyway would have been what it was yeah. without Ken. Ken, you know, in the, in, the, in the playbill, he was listed as the orchestra. And that isn't really even a joke. It was, he brought sounds out of the piano I've never heard uh, in that way. He yeah. was psychic. When you're on the stage and we were doing our, our, my solo, especially the ad, we were psychically connected. He knew what I was doing and we were connecting on a level that I'd never connected on stage before with anybody. He would know immediately when I was going to pause, he knew he could hear the laughter. We were all in relationship with each other. And I, to this day, I have never experienced anything like that and the audience yeah. knew it they there was something that they knew on a soul level that was going on every performance yeah. in that way and it was uh yeah, he's yeah it was a genius really sure Absolutely. such a loss yeah so uh, attributed a lot to to uh to the new sound i think that let my people come had if you had heard the show on tour after hearing the cast album it was a mm -hmm. real different experience it was a it sounded way, it sounded much more off Broadway. It sounded much more like a musical in a traditional sense than the original uh, did. They were both really wonderful, but really different in that way. And uh, often the critics would call us Godspell. They said there's a real Godspell spiritual energy to what these people are doing. And it was really mm -hmm. exciting mm -hmm. to do that. So uh, fast forward, uh, you know, uh, 40 years now, uh, you know, on Medicare and you know, being a, an older gay man, I'm in Palm Springs. Of course, that's where we end up. Either Palm Springs or or or, or Wilton Manor, Florida. So here we, here we are. And I actually came out here because a friend of mine, Terry Ralston, who did company and the Little Night Music, and all, uh, it's my dearest friend. Uh, we um, she was doing ballroom here, and I said, Oh, I want to, I want to come see you. I was in D.C. I just I just finished uh, doing 30 years of ministry. I said I need to go back to theater because that's where my heart is. And I said, I want to come out and see you. Maybe I'll just get a job or do something. So the voice, you know, the voice said, um, why don't you look online? Why don't you look on Craigslist? I went, Craigslist for a job. I said, I'm not looking to be a masseur or anything, you know. But I said, just do it. So I went on and there's an ASM for ballroom equity contract. And I went, no, they don't advertise. Nobody advertises on Craigslist for an equity show. And I called, you know, called Terry. And so we arranged it. And, how did that end up in Craigslist? And she said, well, um, I, the director said, well, I told, I told the office people to put an ad. I thought they were going to call equity. They put it on Craigslist. They said, nobody does that. 
but I was meant to be here. So I, I came here, I got the job, and now I'm the I'm the uh, production stage manager for the season here at uh, in Coachella Valley Rep Theater. Awesome. And uh, yeah, just re reclaiming my roots. I think we should all do a revival of Let My People Come with the original people or anybody who's still around and call Let My People Go. <laughs> that is just... Everything will be like three or four inches lower. <laughs> That's for sure. But it'll be... That'd It'll be, be fun. so pretty. <laughs> you know, talking about, we did the show one night in Philadelphia when the heat was out. We went to the dressing room. There was there was a hole in the ceiling. There was that. snow on my dressing room table. Oh wow! So we went downstairs. We we told Phil we're not doing the show naked. He was not having a or he was not having it. But we said we're not doing it naked. We're you know we're, we're we don't want to catch pneumonia. You know we did the show and they reacted the same as if we had you know the show is. Uh -huh. Great, and whether you take your clothes off or no or not, they loved it. They yeah. really, really loved it. They went. Somebody said, "Isn't there nudity in the show?" I said, "Usually, you know, when the heat is on." They went, "You know, I, it, I didn't really notice you weren't, but I, I had heard you were nude, but oh, I really I'll loved it anyway." So. <laughs> yeah. I think that is the perfect way to end. Th thank you so much to the three of you uh, for coming on. And, and, and Catherine, first of all, introducing me to the show. I'll be honest. I didn't know. I didn't know about this show because um, so I glad you can't do. know everything. But, but you, when I learned about it and, and the history of it and, and listened to it and all that stuff, it, it, I'm so glad that I was able to talk to you. And I hope to introduce other people to it because there are so many shows that are lost mm. in time. Um, because they just don't yeah. know about it, right? The, it, it, you know, you're up for a Grammy. You ran for 10 years. Revivals. You had angry strippers. Like, you've had the run the gambit of everything. And Life-changing. Life-changing. So thank you, you Jean-Paul. Yeah. And, and Margaret Trudeau. And thank you for <laughs> writing Trudeau, it, Earl. Yes. Thank you for writing this show and creating some incredible you, friendships and life-changing life-changing moments. Yeah. We love you, Earl. Really Thank you. I love you, Paul. Love you, Earl. Love, love you, John Paul. Catherine Ellie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Are we getting yeah. naked? No, okay, sure. we'll, we'll ignore that for now. We did a nude radio interview yes, we in Winnipeg. <laughs> we did. We did a nude radio interview in Winnipeg. And the guy took his clothes off, too, so that was kind of fun. Yeah, Maybe next, next time. time. Maybe <laughs> next interview we'll do that. We were just speaking with uh, the creator and a couple of cast members from the wonderful show, Let My People Come. Tune in next week as we'll speak with another guest or guests about their life, love, and passion that is musical theater. I'm your host, as always, Jean-Paul Yovanoff. And until next time, I'll see you when I see you.